0: Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. This February, history will be made. Millions will watch as 80 years of unjust stigma is left in the past. A product that drove good people to the black market will be revealed as one that's creating a new global market. This February, what inspired the symbol of counterculture? will at long last be seen as just culture. The new normal is coming. Will you be one of the first to see it? Visit medmen.com to watch an exclusive preview. The following program is a Forbes and Podcast One production.
1: Hi, I'm Denise Rastari, and this is Mentoring Moments, a podcast where smart, witty, and bold women are sharing their triumphs and their skids. We aren't just talking, we're taking action, and we're inviting you to join us every Wednesday in my New York City apartment where we are proudly sponsored by the Business Platinum card from American Express. However, you move your business forward with Business Platinum, it's not about where you are, it's about where you want to take your business next, and nothing helps. Helps you like the resources and know how of the Business Platinum Card, backed by the service and security of American Express. And sitting across the table, the table from me today in my apartment, is Lauren Anderson. Before I tell you about Lauren, you need to know this because this podcast comes with a warning in quotes, possible girl crush ahead. I say that because whenever I introduce Lauren to women, they always say to me, Like within moments of meeting you, Lauren, they say, I have such a girl crush on Lauren. And I get that. And I'm going to tell a story that will, everyone will understand why we all have a girl crush on you. So when I first met Lauren, that was back in 2012, she told me this story. You said to me, When I was 11 years old, my parents took me to Washington, D.C., and we toured the FBI headquarters, and I asked the tour guide if girls could be FBI agents. And he answered, I'll let you
2: give the answer. He said, He said, no, girls can't be FBI agents. To which I said, why not? And he said, because girls would spend all their time painting their nails.
1: And fast forward, which is just like one of those moments where you're like, Oh, what? (laughs) Really, what? Fast forward 15 years later, you were appointed a special agent of the FBI. So as you were telling me that story, and I have that smile with that, go girl, you are such a badass look, I'm sure. (laughs) Then you followed with your first. I said, so tell me more. And you said that you were the first at many things at the FBI, that you were one of the first women on the SWAT team and the first woman to run the FBI's office at the American embassy in Paris, France, in the immediate aftermath. At, of at 9 11, right? Which is like, I mean, I'm just sitting there and like my jaw is dropping, I'm sure. And as I'm thinking, holy moly, like this is incredible, then you tell me that you were the first woman to lead the FBI in Africa. And you said you were selected to lead the FBI's International Terrorism Investigations and Operations for the New York Office's Joint Terrorism Task Force. And I'm just sitting there, I'm sure, like, because then you went on to tell me that you led teams that disrupted numerous terrorist plots. I think back to what I was doing, and I was selling newspapers at a discount for USA Today. (laughs) what? (laughs) And I thought I was doing a really good job. Well, I love that story so much, as you know, that I asked you to come to the inaugural Forbes Women's Summit and tell that story. But to add one thing to the end of it, and that is to say, I'm Lauren Anderson, and I'm redefining power. And you retired from the FBI a few months after we met. We met in September Mm -hmm. and you retired in December. And you've been redefining power ever since then. So it's not about the job. It's about who you are. You just happen to be in a job that really redefined power, but you're still doing it in a big way. And your Twitter feed, I'm going to share your Twitter feed. It says, Inspiring Working with Youth and Women Internationally you're fearless. I couldn't I couldn't agree more on that one. You're a geopolitical expert, you have your own consulting company, you're a global ambassador for Vital Voices, which I'm a huge fan of, and you're an advisory board member of The Uncondemned, a documentary that I'm also a huge fan of and I'm an advisory board member as well as well. You're a much better advisory board member than I am, <laughs> that's another story. And you're a member and a former board member of the International Women's Forum of New York City. And for those of you who have heard Ivy Wolf Turk on the show, and she is the founder of Project Liberation, Lauren is a board member of Project Liberation. Now, if you haven't heard the show, go listen to the show. First of all, that would be number one, but not right now. Listen to us now, but- This is really great because Ivy was arrested at 5 a.m. or in the middle of the night in a pink nightgown by approximately 21 FBI agents at gunpoint. They were armed and at gunpoint. Lauren wasn't one of them, but the fact that you have an FBI exec who is on the board is one of those great stories in life. I'm sure there are stranger things that have happened in life, but this is a great one that you're on the board. And this is a lot for for Ivy as well of who she is and what she's doing um, but as I said you just keep redefining power and that's who you are so there's so so many stories I want to get into So my mentoring moment today is going to be about how we met, because that's another question people ask me all the time is, how did you meet Lauren? So the story goes, it was back in 2012 here in New York City. We were invited to a Clinton Global Initiative dinner that was being sponsored by Goldman Sachs. And at the time, Dina Powell was heading up the foundation for Goldman Sachs, and that included 100,000 women, that part of the foundation. Dina now works in the Trump administration, but then she was at Goldman Sachs. And I was so honored to get this invitation to go to this dinner. I was a as was I. <laughs> it was a Clinton global dinner and it's by Dina Powell, who is a big deal and Goldman Sachs. And it was like, this is great. So I get there and I'm so excited and I enter the room and I look around, I do that quick scan and not one person do I know except for Dina Powell was in the room. No other person. and She's busy. She's the hostess of this event. And there are, there were hundreds of people in that room, but I knew no one. So I think, okay, well, if I just walk around the room, maybe I'll see someone or I can interrupt a conversation. And I've talked about this before because I'm an introverted extrovert, right? So being in those situations are not comfortable for me. I don't like being in rooms where I don't know anyone, where you have to crash into someone's conversation. And this that night in particular was... People were deep in conversation. So nobody was looking up at you as you were walking around, like, oh, come over here and join us. Everybody was looking at me as I was walking around, like, just stay away. Okay, we're like talking about business. We just really don't want you. So I go around the room once and no one. I did think about pulling out my cell phone and going in a corner and acting like I'm oh so busy. (laughs) The thought of hiding in the bathroom did come into my mind. But I was like, I'm so happy to be here. I don't want to go like hide out and I don't know who I'm going to be seated next to at dinner or how the dinner goes. So I walk around one more time. And the first time I see this woman standing there by herself also. And that woman is you, Lauren. Mm-hmm. And the second time you're still standing there, but you weren't giving me the evil eye of don't come near me. There was body language and there was eye contact that was going on. So it wasn't that I was the brave soul that it said walked up, but I did walk up to you and say, I know nobody in this room. And I think you don't know anybody either. <laughs> so we need to get to know each other. So so we, true. so we talk and that's when you told me your story about when we first got into your story about the FBI and I'm just sitting there one Once again, thinking like, holy moly, (laughs) this woman is like incredible. And they say time to go in for dinner. So we say we'll stay in touch and all the things we say at cocktail parties. and We may have exchanged cards and I'm sure we did because I was determined to stay in touch with you. But that was made easy because we go into the room Mm. and Dina Powell has place cards on the tables. She has prearranged everyone where they're sitting and we are seated next to each other. And when I told that to Dina, like after the event, she was like, I knew the two of you had to meet. And it was one of those moments in life where a friend of mine says, there are no accidents in life. There are only head-on collisions. And five years later, I've had some of the most treasured moments with you, the good things in life, the not so good things in life we have shared. And I'm just so honored to be your friend that everybody has a girl crush on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that is my mentoring moment you could add anything to it that you want since you were there
2: <laughs> no I you told it beautifully and it is absolutely true there's two of us just circling the room and we don't know anyone we don't know anyone and to have been place cards seated next to each other it was it was absolutely meant to be and I am honored and delighted to be here with you
1: today I think it's so funny because when we met then, you were with the FBI. Yeah. We weren't meeting on the grounds of we're both working with women. You've done a lot of work with women, but your title didn't include that. It wasn't like you were working for Vital Voices or with Vital Voices. You were the FBI, and I I had Girlquake. So that we didn't have that. But now it's just funny how our worlds are so intersected with the uncondemned. We're both on the advisory board. Mm-hmm. With Project Liberation, you're on the board I Know Ivy, she's been on the podcast. There's so many of those stories in our lives of how our women are connecting. And She's the First, for many of you know, I'm on the board of She's the First, mm-hmm. and we were doing an auction as a fundraiser, and I needed to come up with an auction item, so I auctioned. My 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 auction item was Lauren Anderson. We're going to auction <laughs> off Lauren Anderson to go to lunch with someone to talk about her life at the FBI. This is a post-FBI <laughs> days for her. It was the highest, wasn't it? It was second highest. Second after highest. Diana, no, first yes, after dvf you came in second with getting the most um, the most um contribution to be able to go with lord and this speaks volumes about you too Lauren. so you go out to lunch the man who bought the auction i'll let you tell the story his niece is wants to go to the F-
2: yeah so the man who who won the auction and i looked him up i thought this guy was the chief of staff to secretary of defense bill cohen why on earth does he want to spend any time with me? This makes no sense to me. And I thought it was weird. (laughs) So when I sent my congratulatory email to him, I said, you know, thank you so much. She's the first. is a wonderful organization. And, you know, we're all grateful for your support. And he said, well, it's actually for my niece. She's 15 years old, and this is a gift to her from my wife and I because she's very interested in the FBI and in forensics and thinks that that might be something in her future. And so it was all about Rachel, which was wonderful. And she had not had any real experience in New York City. And I said, what's her favorite food? And so we took her to Little Italy and have a wonderful lunch and then took her to Ferrara's for pastries afterwards. And Rachel is now going to be starting her junior year in college. And we have stayed in touch. Um, and I have mentored her from time to time, and, and Bob and I have stayed in touch as well. And soon she'll be
1: the director of the FBI, but that's another story. <laughs>
2: that's another
1: story. We so, can only hope. So I want to get into your mentoring moment. Okay. So, what is yours? I can't wait to hear this one. It's going to make my, not that meeting you is pale, but whatever mentoring moment <laughs> I've had in the past, this is going to, mother, going to pale my comparison.
2: Well. Actually, I would say one of the most impactful moments for me happened very early in my FBI career. I was assigned after graduating from the academy to the Milwaukee, Wisconsin office, which at that point in time, I had to look up on a map. And I thought, this is great. I went out there, very excited, was assigned to a counterintelligence and counterterrorism squad, which there was a surprising amount because at that point in time, the Cold War was still going on. And... I just was eager to do everything and anything that I could. I volunteered for every additional assignment that came up. One of the other things that I did, which you mentioned in the opening, is I decided to try out for the SWAT team. And it was never about being the first woman. I've never really looked at any of it that way. It was kind of afterwards I thought, oh, yeah, but it was never a driver. My driver and interest in trying out for the SWAT team was because In true woman fashion and in young woman fashion, I was lacking confidence, and I thought that if I could try out for the SWAT team and by any bizarre chance make it, it would allow me to have a lot more tactical training, more experience with firearms, and do training not only with other FBI agents, but with the Milwaukee County Police Department and the Sheriff's Office. So that was my driver, and I made it to my surprise. And And why to your surprise? Because it never occurred to me that, you know, a few months out of the FBI Academy that I would have been able to perform at a level that was sufficient for being chosen for the team. Now, things are different today. I'm not so sure. Well, I can tell you that six months out of the Academy, that would not have happened if it was going on today. But it did then. And I loved that there was another woman selected, too, an African-American woman who I adored named Joyce Atkins. So we were two women and it was great to have all that additional training. So there are only two women. Mm-hmm. And as far as those. we know, there weren't any others in the FBI at that point in time from all we could determine. But again, it wasn't Joyce's driver either. That's not what we were about. So we move into the fall and of, as I said, about six months out of the academy. And there was a major organized crime drug conspiracy case under investigation by Milwaukee. And a lot of people don't, associate Milwaukee with organized crime and the mafia as we do in New York. But in fact, there was a very vibrant um, number of families in the Midwest portion of the country, and one was in Milwaukee. So most of the big bosses have been taken down, and an individual by the name of Anthony Pepito, who was a soldier in the Ballesteri crime family, was under investigation. And they were moving cocaine from Miami up to Wisconsin. So lo and behold, after working a typical 11 hour day for me a group of us had gone out to have a beer together and before the first sip of the beer came it came a phone call into the bar because that was before pagers mm-hmm. before cell phones and they, they
1: knew where to find you at <laughs> the knew bar they find us <laughs> <That's funny. laughs>
2: they called the bar and they are like things are Isn't wrong everybody <laughs> 1984 everybody's got to get out and go back to the office because the cocaine is on the move from Miami <laughs> And furthermore. Our, and did you have to leave your beer there? You yeah, away there? I did. No, no, right. left it. Yeah, left it there. It was right. there later. But um, and we had to do this because for the Miami field office of the FBI, this was a very small amount of cocaine. It was multiple kilos. So big for Milwaukee, not big for Miami. So in FBI parlance, when you're going to have surveillance go from one location to another crossing state lines, you say the per- you're going to take the person. And Miami said, it's too small for us. We can't take it. We'll let you know when he's leaving. We'll take the guy moving the cocaine out of the division. And then it's on you, Milwaukee. So my role, eager person that I was, was an assignment. They put me in a car with a police officer who I had never met before that night and literally put me at a toll plaza on Interstate 90 on the Illinois-Wisconsin border and said, here's binoculars, watch for the car to come across the border into Wisconsin and tell us when you see it. And I thought, wow, I was like really like, wow, this is a really important job. And then I'm thinking, are you kidding me? They just put me in a toll plaza (laughs) with a guy who talked to me for about 15 minutes of small talk and promptly fell asleep. So I'm by myself sitting wide awake and waiting, and I actually saw the car. And I called it in on the radio, and I said, he just went through. He went through. I'm sure it's him. I saw the license plate. I'm, you know, getting behind him, and then tons of activity. Everybody's on the phone. I'm having to guide aircraft to give them markers, which if you've never worked with aircraft trying to do surveillance, and no, it's I your haven't. first time. <laughs> no, I no. haven't. No, I haven't. So I'm learning as I'm going about how to give him markers while we're you know, it's one 30 in the morning. We're on an interstate and trying to find ways to help him identify the car. So long story short, this individual who worked for Pepito pulls into the parking, pulls into his own driveway and we decide to let the cocaine sit. So about a week or so later, the supervisor and the squad mm-hmm. who had the case, which was not mine, came to me and said, you did such a good job on spotting. His car coming across the border with the cocaine that we're going to give you a reward. And that reward is you will have the arrest assignment for the mistress of the primary individual, um, Tony Pepito. And that's that's a reward in the FBI's
1: world. So I would have thought the reward was say so you can go back to the bar and have your beer. Now. <laughs> that would have been my reward.
2: <laughs> but Yeah, God, that I came I, later. I, I didn't graduate from the FBI Academy. So. <laughs> that came later. So that's my reward. Now, I have at this point in time completed SWAT training, at least the basics. So I'd gotten through, accepted onto the SWAT team, and we're getting ready to go out and effect the arrest. And this was a huge operation. It was what we called a simultaneous takedown, which meant that multiple locations were being Um, hit at the same time for arrests and search. There was over 120 FBI agents, IRS agents, state, um, county, city, Milwaukee, all out in different locations all around. And I'm at this location and with me is a very senior FBI agent who is very well regarded as a great criminal agent and so on and so forth. And before we leave the office, I had just been issued body armor, bulletproof vest, which I was putting on and the guys were busting my chops. They're like, seriously, you're putting a vest on because you're going to go arrest out that coked out girlfriend? Because we had heard through electronic surveillance on the phones with a court order that she had been doing nothing but cocaine and not eating for the last week. So everybody figured this was a throwaway. It would be an easy arrest. And I said, I am putting my body armor on and just like my gun is on my side. And so we sat in the car for a while because you have to do these all at the same time for the maximum amount of surprise. And we're sitting outside of her garden apartment. And while we're there, you know, he's busting my chops repeatedly. Uh, You can just kick in the door, miss SWAT team and everything else. And I'm just sitting there and listening and meantime, I'm watching and I, although it's a garden apartment, so there's a main entrance for a lot of apartments. There were cars that were coming up and the car would stay there idling and someone would get out of the car. These were all males and go into that building, be in the building for a few minutes and then come back out. And this happened repeatedly. And I said to the agent with me, you know, I know we can't know for sure where they're going in there. I said, but there's been a series of cars come up where somebody idles and somebody goes out and comes in and then they leave. And he dismissed it. Basically, and suggest that I was perhaps seeing things. So we get ready. We get the order to go in and effect the arrest. So as we're walking into the building, we had some Milwaukee County uh, Sheriff's deputies with us, Milwaukee County Police Officer, and the two of us um, FBI agents. And he said, "Okay, Miss SWAT, you can go ahead and kick that door in." And I looked at him, I said, I don't need to kick the door in because I'm going to get her to open the door. And he just looked at me. I went right up to her door. I knocked on the door and she came to the door and she said, yes. And I said, hi, Gail, my name is Debbie. I live upstairs from you and I got your mail by mistake and wanted to bring it down to you. So what did she do? She opened the door. Of course she (laughs) opened the door and in we went, we all pushed in everybody with weapons out very small apartment and there was like a kitchen counter separating where the hallway entrance was into the living room and the kitchen area. And as we all go in with guns drawn, there is not only the woman we're there to arrest, but there's three guys in there pointing guns at us. And in fact, what I had seen was what I suspected is that people were coming in to buy Coke from her because she was selling it. So it would have been – one of those also momentary things where it happens so quickly, you can't think. But the judgment call was we don't shoot, even though we could have shot with guns pointed at us. Whole thing progresses with no injuries. And then this agent tries to talk to this woman and get her to cooperate, which you don't do in a room full of people. You take them away privately, which was tough to do in there. And now we had four people under arrest instead of one. And how many, there were two agents and how many? Uh, I think we were six on that arrest team. So we now have half of many as us under arrest and he gets fed up with her and he said, just take her out and book her. And I said, well, I want someone to go out with me. He goes, what's your problem? Can't you take her out and book her yourself? I said, that's not the issue. I said, but she's in handcuffs, which means I have to halter my, holster my gun, and I have to walk outside. I said, I told you before that I saw cars pulling up, and I said, these three guys are in here now under arrest, and they had guns pointed at us, and he was dismissive. He made a number of derogatory remarks to me, and I said, I'm not going out, and I refused to budge. I said, until you call for backup or you send at least one other person out there with me, I'm not leaving this apartment. And I held my ground, and finally he made a call, and we waited. I'm not sure how much time because it, it all was kind of a blur at that point. But you know, maybe another 10, 15 minutes, and then he said, "Okay, now it's an all clear." Well, as I walk out the door with her, I knew he had called the Milwaukee Police Department. There's literally a, a small bus a little bit bigger than a van that they were loading people onto because there was three or four cars out there that these guys had come in and everybody in the vehicles had weapons. So they had to collect all the weapons and all the people and put them in the bus. And that's when I agreed to walk out and um, take her for processing.
1: Okay. So <laughs> like, I don't even know where to start, but did you do you have anything else to fit? Cause I don't want to,
2: I don't want to distract your train of thought. Yeah. No, the only thing that I, I would add from that. And then we can talk about the mentoring points is that after I did that for her and made sure that she had medical personnel look at her at the jail because she had not been eating and she was pretty wasted down to maybe 90-something pounds, is I explained what was going to happen to her. I was civil. I was courteous because there was no reason not to. And then the following week, her attorney called the United States Attorney's Office and who, who then called the FBI and said she's willing to cooperate, but only if the female FBI agent that arrested her is there. Because you were kind to her, or because you saved her life? I mean, in a way, she never articulated what it was, but the way that it came across was because I had been concerned for her safety as well as my own. That was obvious. She was right. standing the there during she this kind conversation. Kind of saved her life, and maybe. And saved second. Her life. I treated her with compassion. Yes, she was under arrest. Yes, she was a cocaine trafficker, but she didn't do anything to me that would have warranted her being treated in any kind of rough way. There was no reason for it. So I can only speculate because she never told me what the reason was. But when that happens, there is always a reason why behind that kind of a request. And that's how it proceeded. Before we continue with Lauren's exciting stories,
1: let's talk about the business platinum card from American Express. The Business Platinum card from American Express is the card that I carry, and it's the card that I used to launch my business. It's because business can be done from anywhere, in the palm of your hand and at the source. However you move your business forward with Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum card, backed by the service and security of American Express.
0: This February, history will be made. Millions will watch as 80 years of unjust stigma is left in the past. A product that drove good people to the black market will be revealed as one that's creating a new global market. This February, what inspired the symbol of counterculture will at long last be seen as just culture. The new normal is coming. Will you be one of the first to see it? Visit medmen.com to watch an exclusive preview. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America. It was the next day that I found out from my parents what had happened, that my sister was killed. Each one is called a cold case.
2: Sometimes you have
0: to look really closely to find the evidence. Damn Damn it, I killed her. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Garcia is walking into the home of a real monster. I was nervous. I realized what kind of person I was dealing with. It's a goosebump moment. Download new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app, or subscribe at Apple podcasts or podcast one.com this is mentoring moments with Denise Rostari.
1: so you enter a room and there are people pointing guns at you and you've only been out of the academy for six months-hmm that's correct what goes through your head
2: my even now as I'm relating this story my heart is pounding in my chest and that's exactly what was happening at that point in time it was the first real, Situation that I was in, in terms of an arrest of somebody with my weapon out and facing three people who had guns pointed at me and my fellow team members. Everybody talks about when you're in a situation like that, even though it's so quick, it's seconds, it's almost like slow motion. And I can, to this day, almost 33 years later, you know, vividly have it in my mind, but my heart was pounding in my chest. I was hyper aware of everything going on around me and reliving it now. I'm feeling the same way. I wish people could see you because you can see your whole body posturing is,
1: I can't imagine being real life and training have to be very, very different when you're like shooting at something that's not human shooting back at you. Correct. Right. (laughs) What gave you the guts and the courage? Here you are as a young woman and there are these guys who are established who are higher ranking than you in the system? They may not have been your boss, but they are higher ranking. They've been there longer to stand up and say, "I'm not doing it your way." I mean, I think of it just as mere mortals, <laughs> yeah, have like normal jobs. <laughs> Have a hard time standing up to power.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I just felt so strongly in my gut that it was wrong. And I was paying attention to everything going on. And and to me, to be the best kind of agent and still every agent that I met that I would qualify in that category, it was you pay attention to everything. The best advice I got coming out of the academy was from a Chicago police officer who had been at the FBI's National Academy. And he said – Lauren, the best advice I can give you is to keep your eyes open, your ears open, and your mouth shut. And that's learn. great
1: advice for everybody. It's fabulous. I mean advice. I'm not saying not to speak up, but when you're in a situation I got that advice from a boss years and years ago mm-hmm. who said, when you don't know what you're talking about, which will happen in life, he wasn't saying I was stupid. He wasn't, he, he was saying this is a helpful mentoring moment, right? Mm-hmm. This was how he got to where he was in life. He said, when you don't know what you're talking about, listen and learn so that you can be a part of the conversation.
2: That's absolutely true. And I would also say that my upbringing played into that because my mom and dad and I have two brothers. Yes, I was a girl, but I was not, you know, treated differently from the time I can remember. My dad used to say to me, you can be anything you want, Lauren, but be the boss. And from a very young age, he spoke to me that way. He encouraged me to be strong. He would get down on his knees, he had boxing gloves, and he would box with all three of us kids. So, you know, I can remember doing that at 5 or 6 years old. And so, I was brought up in a home where I was encouraged to be confident and listen and be respectful, but also be confident and don't be afraid to try anything. And growing up that way is unquestionably, my mom was an incredible influence too. And my brothers, there's no question that that played into my confidence and my, my belief in doing something that was right and serving my country and all the rest of it, it all flows from there. And I want to get into that too, but I
1: want to go back to your mentoring moment because I want to make sure if there was any points you wanted to make about that, that we make those. If there was anything else you wanted to share, I want to make sure. we. Make
2: First those. of all, I think it's trusting your gut. Too often as women, we think that that's somehow an inferior quality and not a strength, and it is a strength. And trusting your gut, in, in my case, it has saved my life in some instances, but in many other situations, it hasn't been nearly as dramatic and it's still been helpful. Second, the whole standing up to power. Now, he was not my boss. He was not even on the same squad, which was the entity that you work at, but he was a senior agent that was very well respected. So it took it took something to stand up to him. And the other thing that came out of that is that Women approach things in a different way. Even though I had all this SWAT training, I knew there was a much easier way through that door than a battering ram or kicking it in. Because I knew her, she was another woman. I didn't know her personally, but I thought what's the least threatening thing that can happen? It's another woman knocking on your door and say you got your mail by mistake.
1: Right, and especially not thinking that a woman is an FBI agent. That's not where most people's minds go when you hear a woman
2: voice. That's absolutely true. But I think the benefit of diversity, whether it's a gender diversity or any diversity, having that diversity of thought really allows you to look at any situation, whether you're sitting in a boardroom or whether you're going out to arrest somebody, that diversity of thought really can allow whatever it is to proceed in the most effective and successful way with the least amount of uh, drama and tragedy in that instance. And that is a great point as well. And if there were all men
1: there and not a woman and they're breaking down the door, I mean, who knows what would have happened, but we know what happened having you being able to enter and giving everybody a different look at the men, perhaps, maybe a different look at the men who are sitting on the sofa versus everybody storming and breaking down mm-hmm. the door. It's And having that diversity of women do see things differently than men do sometimes. We don't always push things through the door.
2: Well, and I would we say, find too. Find ways to get in. For a little bit more color to this, because the way things were back then, you wore business clothes. So I was in a high, suit, heels. A t- high heels. <laughs> You're kidding a I was suit. just. I was yeah, my body armor. Underneath my my nice silk blouse and my jacket and my skirt down to mid calf and my high heels and that's how we went in back then to do the arrest.
1: Okay, so when I'm watching like
2: the crime shows,
1: whether it's CSI or Homeland or whatever, and people are in high heels like going through the park and their heels are sinking, I'm like, could you not wear a pair of? Sne-? I mean, I wear sneakers, <laughs> but in those days, was that just
2: was was that the uniform? It was because you were also presenting an appearance. Right. And it was the FBI and the FBI projected suits. It was only years later that things, you know, throttled down. But, yeah, sometimes the heels didn't work when we were doing yeah, one. Yeah, I would think not. No, one. <laughs> one. one of, while I was at the academy, we were doing one practical training exercise towards the end, which is a big problem, and you have to act like it's a real case. And I was compelled to run after somebody, and I was dressed in a suit and heels, and I threw them off in the middle of the grass and just went after the person that I had to get for the particular problem, and then went back the next day to try and find my shoes. <laughs> were they there? They were there. <laughs> like they were on the firing range. So, yeah, you know, finding a pair of women's heels on the firing range was pretty as much, easy to locate.
1: As, as, as everyone, I think, can figure out why everybody has a girl crush on you, I just yeah. sit here like, holy moly. It's like, you did what next? So your parents, mm-hmm. when you said you wanted to be an FBI agent, what was their response?
2: My parents supported anything that I wanted to do. And that, although it came up at age 11, it wasn't the first thing. It wasn't the thing that I wanted to be in my teens. I wanted to be a doctor. So that was my first failure, was going to a school, Muhlenberg College, magnificent liberal arts college in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And they had a very strong science program.
1: I didn't know that, that you wanted to be a doctor.
2: Yes. And I went to be pre-med at Muhlenberg. That was my focus. And it was my first failure because, despite getting good grades before, I was not getting good grades. And to t- totally reassess my life, um, my mom was pretty supportive. My dad gave me a very hard time about it and said, "You know, you're quitting," and everything else. So it was it was a it was a difficult period of time. And it really wasn't until I changed my major, got out, came here to New York, and got my first job, and really started thinking about what I want to do, that. The FBI came into focus. I thought about State Department. I thought about CIA. I thought about NYPD. And, you know, back then, no internet. So I called the CIA. I called call them and say I want to talk to somebody about working for them. And they hung Did the phone. Did you call on, like, your no. shoe phone? Yeah, they, yeah, they hung <laughs> the phone right up on me. And they're like, no, this isn't happening. So so it was serendipity that the job that I had, that they hired a woman as an admin assistant, and she had just quit the FBI in the same kind of capacity, And they said, Hey, Lauren, there's this woman that was just tired. And I, again, I can remember vividly what I was wearing. And I went running through this office, this Madison Avenue office, at full speed to try and find this woman. And uh, she is, in fact, the woman who introduced me to the FBI field office in New York and introduced me to a woman agent at that point in time. And it went from there. And the CIA, it's their loss. They didn't (laughs) take the phone call. I, I don't think I had the right makeup for the CIA because I have enormous respect for them. i worked with them my entire career. I have enormous respect. And but how many years were you in the FBI? Huh? 29. But to be a case officer, which is the big operational role in the CIA, you know, requires you to live a lie. And it's imperative that you be able to do that well, to do your job well. And I think just constitutionally, I'm not that kind of a person. I would have been very uncomfortable to live that way. Well, I have enormous respect for them and it doesn't affect it. It's just knowing right. me and who I am. And that live was my meaning. Role. You can't tell people what you're really you really are, you who do. you are. When you're assigned overseas, you may be, depending on what your role is, you're not in your true name. You may be living a partial truth and partial lie. You may be living a complete lie. And lie, it in this sense, shouldn't have a negative connotation. Right. No, exactly. Because it's it's necessary. It's necessary for the job. But I just, I knew, and as I continued to work over, you know, almost three decades with a lot of men and women that I have enormous respect for in the CIA, I just knew that I was in the right place. And that was in the FBI. So when you were talking earlier about following
1: your gut, that's something that I think a lot of women I hear saying that they're working on. When do you know when you're, when to follow your gut. What is, what are some of the things like when you just know that I have to do this, my gut is that strong?
2: Well, for me at times they were literally physical. Some of it was cerebral and I, I knew in my head, no, you know, here's this set of facts and circumstances. And, you know, my gut tells me do this. And, and sometimes it's literally physical where my stomach would start churning or I feel the adrenaline start coursing through my veins. And, you know, I get, into that whole fight or flight right. mode, which for me, I'm the kind of person who runs toward most things that others run away from. Really? <laughs> but, <laughs> Could have fooled me. But, but you feel it. You know, there was another thing that happened to me when I was working overseas that I may have shared with you at one point in time, where we were working an investigation into the murder of a Peace Corps volunteer in uh, Gabon in West Africa. And we had asked for help. The, the police were terribly corrupt. The first investigation was horribly corrupted. And the ambassador had said at the time to the to the government of Gabon, if you do not cooperate with an FBI investigation, we will remove the Peace Corps from this country and you won't see them again, which is a huge threat. And really, I, I respected why he was doing it, but he – unintentionally created an extremely difficult set of circumstances for us to then come in, try and develop rapport and relationship with our counterparts in the country and reinvestigate this murder. And at one point there are, there are many aspects to it, but one of the points when you're talking about intuition is also an ethical moment. And one of what do I do in this situation? Because no one teaches you what to do. And this was another situation where my gut helped guide me. One morning I walked into the colonel's office that was my primary interlocutor on that, and in the middle of his office is a man sitting in a chair with no arms, basically a wooden chair, and he has nothing on but briefs, no other clothing, and I was startled, I mean visibly startled, I couldn't even hide it, this man's back to me, but the colonel was sitting at his desk, and I started to back out of the office quite literally, thinking I had interrupted something else, which – to me, looked unseemly, and he said, "Oh, please come in, Madame. This is so and so, your witness. He was a witness. He was your a witness to his briefs. Neighbor sitting there in his briefs. And I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, this guy is now going to have to sit facing a white woman from the United States and other people, and have an interview for which he is allegedly a cooperating witness. He had nothing to do with the crime, and everyone knew that. But it became very difficult because I said to the colonel." Where is his clothing? And in my own mind, I'm having to quickly go through this because we were under some real physical threat there. And I knew we had to go up in the jungle later on. And I thought so quickly, I can't even tell you is going through my mind is how much do I ask for? How much do I insist upon for this thing to move forward in a way that gives this man some dignity and self-respect and any interest in cooperating? And so I settled on having him put trousers on. And then I said, "Where was he overnight?" And he said, "He was in a cell." And I said, "You kept him locked up in a cell overnight." I said, "Has he eaten? Has he had anything to drink?" And he was waving his hand and very dismissive. Oh, don't worry about this. Let's just let's just sit down and you interview him. And it became a spectator sport. But so what I got was trousers on him, and something to drink, and a snack at one point. Um, and my gut was screaming, but I had four other agents for whom I had responsibility in terms of their security and their safety. And we were going to be, this was in the first couple of days, we were going to be in the country for a week. And we were going up into an area where there was even less security and, if it's possible, more corruption. And so I had to balance their safety first, mine second, and what was going to happen to this man after we left, which was a huge part of it because during the course of the interview, he talked about how he had been tortured at the time this woman was killed. And he started crying. And I just reached out and put my hand on his arm. And I said, it's okay, take your time. And the colonel sitting there with his cigarette waving in the air said, get on with the story. We get that you were tortured, just move on. We don't have all day. So again, it was a moment of intuition and you have to decide very quickly how much am I going to go for and where is that line? And you don't really know where that line is where I'm making demands, but when does the line cross from my demands to putting people that I'm with at risk? And so what did you do? I, I did. I talked to him privately. I went up to him. I made sure that the conversation was not in the direct line of sight and hearing distance of this, this man sitting in the room and everyone else was outside the office. And I talked to him privately and I said, I want trousers on him. I want him to have something to drink and I want something brought in here, some sort of snack. I don't care what it is, but I want him to have that and that's going to happen before we start. So you were able to do as much as you could do Mm -hmm. for him,
1: but still protecting your team. Yes. And that's, that's admirable. I'm listening to this and just thinking, you know, It's a great lesson in that you can't do it all sometimes, Mm -hmm. right? You can't save this man, not save him, but you Mm -hmm. can't give him everything you want to give him Mm -hmm. because you've got your team you're going to protect. But that doesn't mean that you can't do what you can do Mm -hmm. to help this man and 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 do what's right and protect your team, that it doesn't have to be
2: all or nothing it never has to be all or nothing. And, you know, a lot of times we're all faced this pretty dramatic situation. I understand that not a typical person deals with, but it doesn't matter but it to me. It's, it's translatable. It is. And it puts it all in perspective, right? It, it absolutely does. You can, you can put that situation in any office, any boardroom and, you know, that level of concern, fear, anxiety, whatever exists in every situation. And it's really just where your own personal line is in terms of ethics and integrity. And, you know, how far you think you can go without creating a worse situation than you are already
1: in. And would you say that everybody in the FBI has your same level of integrity and ethics?
2: <laughs> I would say the overwhelming majority. do.
1: And that's something that and I'm I very say proud this, of. Lauren tells the truth. She's not. She's not dialing that in. So when you're saying that, you're just not saying that to be politically correct. I'm not. I'm not. That's what I'm saying. I, people who don't know you, that's not. Who you're you right.
2: Are. Because let me give you two other perfect examples. With everything that happened in Abu Ghraib in Iraq, and everything that happened at Guantanamo Bay, the whistleblowing, if you will, in both instances came from FBI agents because that is not the way we were trained to treat people. We have really strict rules that, you know, are drilled into you from the time you start at that academy about how you treat people in custody and what custody consists of to keeping logs. What kind of did you let them go to the bathroom? What did you feed them? What did you give them to drink? Did they need medical care? And so when the FBI agents who were on the ground and embedded in Iraq and those who were down at Guantanamo Bay as part of the interview team saw some of what was going on, they were appalled, and it was FBI agents who spoke up in both situations and said, this is not right the way these people are being treated. It's uncalled for. It's inhumane. It's disrespectful. So that's, that's the culture yes, in the FBI,
1: which is great to know. So I'm going to get to culture in the FBI. But first, I want to ask you about being a woman in a man's world, because I think that you give a whole new meaning to being a woman in a man's world, being at the FBI, especially in the years you were there. Mm-hmm. So. What are some of the challenges, some of the tips you might be, anything you want to share about
2: how you navigated that world? That's a great question because it's on a lot of people's minds, but you don't really know what goes on. And I will say that although I was myself in the earlier years of my career, I felt like I had to be a little man. You know and posture myself how I would stand literally uh, how as a woman I might stand with my legs and my feet closer together Just to get that spread apart stance that most guys have and how I would hold myself And I I did a lot of that in the beginning thinking I had to posture and so how show how strong I was And I began to realize that was completely unnecessary But there was one situation that happened after I'd been an agent for about I would say five years I was now assigned here in New York And uh, I, I can't get into all the details, but suffice it to say that we were in a situation where I was under consideration for trying to get somebody from a foreign government to cooperate with the FBI. And we're sitting in the room with all the bosses and I'm in there and they start having this conversation. It's like they forgot I was there and they're saying, well, he's X number of years older than her. You know, what if he hits on her? And I looked at them and I said, I'm in the room. I'm sitting right here. I'm sitting right here. And if I haven't figured out how to deal with a man who hits on me at age 32, then I'm in a world of hurt and I don't belong in this job, never mind walking the streets of New York City. But, you know, at that point, it wasn't with malice that they were doing this. It was just it was so alien to them that they would have a situation like this, which historically only men had done and they're going through it in their own minds it's like but I'm here I'm here and the other thing that worked really well for me and again I attribute it to how I was raised is I can give as good as I get and I didn't get angry but I would throw it back at the guys and I would find a way to use humor with it and it worked It worked really well. I mean, I worked my tail off. I worked twice as hard as you always hear, as anybody would, to be sure that I knew as much as I could know. I would read extra books. If I was going to work a Russian or then Soviet investigation, I would read everything I could about the country and the political system. So I did everything I could to maximize chances for success. But when somebody would throw something out, I found that diffusing it with humor and tossing it right back at them was the most effective way because it wasn't defensive. It wasn't angry. It wasn't indignant. I mean, the indignance, there's a little bit there, but if you throw it back with humor and write in the language they're used to hearing and putting it back out, they usually laughed in response and it diffused what could have been an awkward situation. So if you were giving tips to
1: young women right now, about when you're in those situations of navigating in a man's world? Is it, can you come up with just a few things that you would say? If you
2: were mentoring a young, if I were 40 years younger and you're talking to me, what would you tell me? First, I would say, know everything you can possibly know. Become a student of what it is. Don't walk into any situation, no matter what it is, without doing your homework. And that means understanding the different personalities. I never went into a conference without knowing who was going to be there, what their agendas might be or were, and how I would find a way to navigate that. So for me, it was a lot of planning. You have to have a good sense of humor. You can't take yourself too seriously. And you have to take your space and take your role. We as women don't do that. You go in a conference room, where are the women? They're on the wall. Yeah, exactly. Get. Off the wall, and sit at the table. I mean, it takes time. You don't wake up and some people do wake up and in that way, I give them that. But others, I mean, I would literally, as I move further up the chain, when I would go into a um, a meeting, I would sit in wherever power was, whether power was at an end of a table or one boss I had liked power center of a conference table, and I would sit myself as close to that power center as possible. And then I always brought props with me. I always took notes, but I would take it and I just spread things a little bit farther than outside of my exact space. I love that because you don't <laughs> seem you seem so like not calculating. You always seem. I love that one. That's what I would say. You know, have a sense of humor, do your homework and, be ready to cooperate. You cannot go in there, anybody in any situation, you can't go in thinking, okay, this is what I have to accomplish. This is what I have to do. In order for you to be effective at what you have to accomplish and what you want to do, you have got to understand what's going on around you and what could compete with that and figure out the best way. And it's not, you know, it's not being duplicitous. It's being smart in terms of how to negotiate a situation and get the outcome that is the best for everyone and the mission, because it was never better, a, a personal outcome that was good for me. Right. It was about what was right for the mission and what was going to give us the greatest possibility of success in moving something forward.
1: Okay. This episode of mentoring moments is ending very differently than other episodes. I'm not blowing Lauren a kiss across the table. I'm not asking her where we can find her. And that's because we're not finished and I'm doing something that I've never done before we're going to continue the conversation with Lauren next week. So today is part one and next week is part two. So tune in next week to find out more about Lauren's life, her jobs. Her, I mean, whenever I'm with Lauren, I just have this look on my face. My jaw drops. I'm just like, really? What I want to find out is what scares her. So we'll talk about that and we'll talk about Did she carry a gun every day? And what was her role on 9-11? Because she was with the FBI on 9-11. And what's going on at the FBI today? How would she feel if she were there now? And speaking of now, what does she do now? How do you top a job like the one she had at the FBI? I mean, it's powerful. It's life-changing. What do you do next Well, she figured that out, and she is living a different dream, a new dream, a great dream, and she's as happy as ever. So before we wrap it up today, I do want to share one more thing, and it's a great takeaway for all of us. Before we turned on the mic, I asked Lauren what she's done with, and she said that she's done with people not being civil and courteous to each other. And when you look at her stories that she told today and the one about arresting Gail, even in those situations, Lauren was always civil and courteous. So let's all take that message and let's take an action and let's move it forward. Starting right now, let's all be more civil and more courteous to each other. Okay, so I want to make sure you get next week's episode. So do something right now so you'll get it automatically. Subscribe at Apple Podcast or PodcastOne.com or download the Podcast One app. And one more thing while you're there rate, review, and share. And talk to me. I'm easy to find. I'm on Twitter at Denise Rastari. Until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter.
0: Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at PodcastOne.com, Forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. I'm Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And we're the hosts of The Limit Does Not Exist, a podcast for human Venn diagrams. That's right. We talk to people with intersecting interests in the arts, STEM, entrepreneurship, and so much more. The easiest way to explain science to non-scientists is to use art. I worry that we lose a lot of creative engineers because our engineering curriculum is not creative. Education should be about empowering people to become better thinkers, good problem solvers, creative inventors, and ethical caring citizens. Download new episodes of The Limit Does Not Exist every Monday on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. This February, history will be made. Millions will watch as 80 years of unjust stigma is left in the past. A product that drove good people to the black market will be revealed as one that's creating a new global market. This February, what inspired the symbol of counterculture will at long last be seen as just culture. The new normal is coming. Will you be one of the first to see it? Visit MedMen.com to watch an exclusive preview.
2: I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United
1: States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, they are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following, following the rule of law, is a serious business.
2: He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him.
1: There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution,
0: uh, the kidnapping of my staff.
2: Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.